You are listening to the season one finale of Serial Sisters. I'm Jamie. And I'm Tess. Today we're bringing you not just one, but two cases. One is an active investigation, the other a cold case. And be sure to listen to the very end because we're going to give you some homework to complete over the break that could help bring these cases to an end. This is Hot and Cold. The first case we're discussing today takes us to Lakeville, Indiana. In 2018, Lakeville had a population of just 793 residents. To put that in perspective, we've talked about growing up in a very small town ourselves where our graduating classes were under 100 people and there's basically a grocery store, a couple of mom and pop places, and that's pretty much it. Well. Our very small hometown has a population of about 3,000 people, more than three times the size of Lakeville. So this really is a very small town. And Jamie, now that you tell everyone that we're from graduating classes of under 100 people, remember when we were bragging last week about being in smart classes and homecoming queen? Yeah. (laughs) Now people are like, okay, well... There's not a lot of competition. (laughs) And with under 100 people, neither one of us were valedictorian still, sadly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But unsurprisingly, Lakeville's violent crime rate is below the national average. Like many small towns, Lakeville is the kind of place where locals would tell you that nothing bad ever happens. But in early 2003, something bad did happen to Lawrence Larry Groves. Larry was a high-end antiques dealer who ran an antique shop in Lakeville. This was a trade he learned from his late partner, Tom, and while it had been the couple's livelihood, it was also something that the pair enjoyed. Larry had been running the business alone for the past couple of years after Tom passed away from a heart attack. On January 12th, 2003, Larry was on the phone with his friend Sandy Smith, who lived in Bluxy, Mississippi at the time. They spoke on the phone regularly, and there was nothing out of the ordinary about this conversation. That is, until there was a loud banging at the door of Larry's home and the sound of a man's voice demanding to be let in. Larry told Sandy that he was going to deal with this visitor and that he'd call her back in 20 minutes. But... He never did. In fact, as far as we know, this is the last time anyone spoke to Larry. Two weeks later, Larry's mother, Wanda, reported her son missing. It seems strange to me that he wasn't reported missing for two weeks, and especially because he ran a local business that he wouldn't have been showing up to. But I haven't really found anything that explains why she waited or you know, no one else had reported him. So maybe disappearing for a few days wasn't particularly out of character for Larry. 
He was a recovering alcoholic who had actually been in AA and NA for a while, and he'd had a difficult time dealing with Tom's death. So it's possible they were more concerned that he'd fallen off the wagon and was drinking than that he had actually disappeared under some mysterious circumstances. Yeah, and keep in mind that he also lived alone. If Tom were still living, of course, he would have noticed that Larry wasn't coming home, but I don't know that he had friends and family dropping by every day to see him. Depending on how frequently he spoke to his friends and family, it's entirely possible that him letting a few phone calls go unanswered wouldn't be that big of a deal and that it took two weeks of not hearing from him for his mom or anyone else to really get the sense that something wasn't right. More so than the fact that it took two weeks for his mom to report him missing, I puzzle over why Sandy didn't think to call police after she didn't get a call back and knew that there was someone angry and confrontational at his door. Well, once he was reported missing, Sandy does give a name to the police of who was on the other side of Larry's door that night. This man's name has never been released publicly. What that tells us is that someone was at the door that Larry knew, and it was likely someone that he knew well enough that he had talked to Sandy about them before because he says, hey, so-and-so's at my door. I'll take care of this and get back to you. Anyway, police go to the home, but they find nothing out of the ordinary. Larry maintained a very tidy home, and as it always was, the home was in immaculate condition when they arrived. Between April and May of 2003, both Wanda and Larry's sister Pam visit his home to look for clues themselves that might tell them where Larry could be. Both of them find the same thing police did, an immaculate home with nothing out of place or out of ordinary. So I'm admittedly not a super tidy person like Larry even now, but when I was younger, I was super messy. My bedroom was always a mess, and when I got to college and got a couple of messy roommates, it got even worse. Our mess would spread to the living room where we would just toss our book bags and shoes and mail pretty much wherever we found a place to sit them down when we came in. My friend Brooke was the same way, and we used to joke that our housekeeping style was best described as there appears to have been a struggle, as in if someone had reported us missing and police said to enter our home to investigate, they for sure would have thought that something bad had gone there down there. Anyway, Brooke, if you're listening to this, sorry for calling you out by name, but I'll say, in both of our defense, we were younger then, and we're probably both a lot more tidy now. The point is, unlike my college dorm, it wouldn't have been difficult to spot something out of the ordinary in Larry's home, but there just wasn't any evidence that anything had happened there. Five months after Larry's disappearance, though, things take a horrifying turn. On June 18, 2003, five months after Larry disappeared, his neighbor Dick Shalyal was in the backyard trimming branches from a peach tree that had overgrown into his yard from Larry's yard. And I get the feeling that this was a little unusual because Dick has stated that it was frustrating to him. It had gotten so bad that the peaches were rotting in the sun and attracting bees to the point that he couldn't even let his dog in the backyard. So as he's trimming and pruning, he notices that the siding and a window of Larry's home is dark, almost like it's been painted black. 
And then he takes a closer look and he realizes that what he sees are bullflies. The home was actually owned by Larry's late partner's dad, Durrell Bennett. So Dick calls Durrell and notifies him of what he's seeing. The two of them enter the home together, and while they don't see anything out of the ordinary, there's a strong, foul odor in the home. They search the entire home, but couldn't figure out what might be causing the odor. Then Durrell, obviously knowing the house well, thought of one last place to look. Right next to Larry's desk and workspace, there was a trap door covered by a rug that led to a crawl space beneath the house. Inside, they found Larry's decomposing remains. Because of the summer heat, his body was too badly decomposed to determine a cause of death. Larry's clothing had blood on it and hair was found on his body. DNA testing revealed that neither belonged to Larry, meaning they likely belonged to his killer. The case is investigated by Indiana State Police. Friends and family tell them that the man who showed up at Larry's door that night, this is the one that Sandy recognized, but whose name has never been publicly released, that he had been selling antiques from Larry's store to other antique dealers since Larry's disappearance. This man was brought in for questioning on the same day Larry's body was discovered. Detective Don Curl described him as cold and calculated. He basically just kept repeating that he had nothing to do with it and had told them everything that he knew. Eventually, he tells them he's not going to speak to them anymore without an attorney present. And I admit that sometimes when someone who already seems suspicious starts asking for an attorney, my first thought is, what are you hiding that you need an attorney to answer simple questions? But the truth is, we've all heard about instances where an innocent person was coerced into confessing to a crime they didn't commit. So if anyone gets the feeling that they're a suspect to a crime, there's nothing wrong with remaining silent until you have an attorney present. In fact, that's probably honestly exactly what you should do. That's why we have the right to remain silent. That's why the right exists, to protect the innocent. It came as a shock to everyone when, in 2006, DNA results indicated that the blood and hair samples obtained from the crime scene were not a match to the man in question. So, keep in mind that Larry's body was so badly decomposed when he was found that they couldn't determine a cause of death. So, we can't say for 100% certainty that he was murdered, but many people still believe that the unnamed man is, is Larry's killer. And some have theorized that perhaps he hired a hitman, and that's why his DNA was not at the crime scene. Anything's possible at this point, but Sandy seems sure that the person at Larry's door that night was someone he knew. I mean, like I said earlier, Larry had even said this person's name. And also, I just want to say, it doesn't makes sense to me that he would hire a hitman only to also show up himself at Larry's doorstep. But 17 years later, this case remains unsolved and it's considered cold. So it's even uh, profiled on Indiana State Police's cold case website, which we'll link in our source material. Resident and journalist Dean Roush has speculated that Larry's homosexuality has played a part in why this case has gone unsolved. 
Yeah, we've talked before about how cases involving people of color, unfortunately, tend to get less media attention and therefore are more likely to remain unsolved. The same is often true in cases involving homosexuals, sadly. I don't know if Larry's case would have been solved already if he were not a gay man, but either way, we know that there has to be someone out there who has some information to help bring this case to a close and to give his loved ones the closure that they deserve. So here are a few things you can investigate over the break to help us help find some answers. For one, Larry had two mixed breed dogs, Ruby and Pepper, who were not found at the home. Now, we're going to see if we can get pictures of them to post for you, but we're not sure that we can because we have not been able to find many pictures of not only Larry's dogs, but of Larry. So there's actually two components to this. One, if you can find pictures of those dogs, post them on the thread that we're going to devote to this case and the one coming next. Also, if you know who may have taken ownership of those two dogs, Ruby and Pepper, after Larry's death, we would like to know that. That's not to say that they're the people responsible for Larry's death, but maybe they came into contact with a person who may know something and they, they could have come into contact with them unknowingly. You know, we don't know how the new owners would have come into contact with them. And by the way, this was in 2003. So keep in mind, this was 17 years ago and the dogs are likely no longer living, but you may have a loved one or a friend or whoever who may know something about these dogs. Right. And just quickly, we don't know what happened to the dogs, like you said, but his home was immaculate. So there was no sign even that the dogs remained in the house for some period of time after he went missing, right? Because there were no like droppings or urine or anything like that. There was also no sign that they were harmed. They're just not there. Right. So we have to assume that whatever happened to the dogs at some point they got out of the home we don't know if it was that night we don't know if someone entered the home and the dogs ran out we we don't know but it's possible that someone took ownership of those dogs so if you can help us figure out who that might have been that could that could be one way that you could help bring closure to the case another thing following larry's disappearance a neighbor said that they'd seen an unnamed man and I believe this is the same unnamed man that we talked about previously. Is that right, Tess? Yeah, it's the same guy. So okay. a lot of people in Larry's life know who's who this person is, but yeah, his so, name's never been publicly mentioned. Okay, so this same unnamed man um, was seen coming and going in a truck, uh, removing antiques from Larry's home. Help us identify this man and or determine why this has not been further investigated. We have to trust that whatever police have learned or whatever they've talked to this man about has either helped to eliminate him or they just don't have enough information. I, we don't know, but we don't have a name. We don't know anything about him. So is this man cleared? Does someone know something that could implicate him? Think about, do you know someone who was involved in antique dealing in 2003 
they may not have lived in Lakeville, Indiana. We don't know that. I know that antique dealers often drive to other areas. And it was also close to South Bend, which was 150 miles away, I think. Uh, nope, actually 11 miles away. Sorry. <laughs> Much closer, actually. But but the point is, you know, it could have been someone that was from another area that would have been traveling to Larry's home. So do you know someone or have you heard someone talk about an antique dealer who suddenly became suspicious around that time? And to your point about traveling and wheeling and dealing antiques, when Tom was alive, they traveled quite a bit around the country for that purpose to pick up antiques, to sell them. So like you were saying, it, it doesn't even necessarily have to be in, in Indiana, you know, that these antiques are showing up. It could be anywhere right. in the country. That's true. And then I have an, uh, a quick, I guess, point or question or something to, you know, kind of chew on to over the break is they found him in this crawl space only because Durrell knew about that crawl space, right? I mean, he owned the house for God knows how long. Whoever put him in there, if we assume that someone put him in there, again, we we can't be sure that he was even murdered. But if he was and someone put him there, they had to have known the house, right? I mean, they had to have known that that crawl space was there. It was under a rug, so it wasn't even visible. Right. Like, who visited his home enough? Was it a friend? Like, did he have people over often? Was he someone who hosted guests regularly enough that they would know this? And even still, he would have to, like, point it out, you know? I mean, his his own mom sat uh, at the desk. I don't think we mentioned this, but when Wanda had gone into the house um, a couple of months later to do her own kind of investigation, see if she could see anything. She sat at his desk and didn't realize the crawl space was there. And when she found out later that he was found there, she was like, the fact that my son's dead body was just feet from me, it was something that she had a really difficult time dealing with. So uh, it just, you would have to absolutely know that it was there almost, you know, and, and have a plan or something. Right, and like if his old mom didn't know it was there, it's probably not one of those things that he showed to guests. Like you know, like a you think of it, like a secret door behind a bookcase or something that someone might show off to friends. But like obviously that wasn't the case. If his old mom didn't even know it was there, right? Or did someone demand some sort of money or something that was pricey that maybe he kept things locked away, and so they followed him down there? You know what I mean, like. He's like, okay, I keep everything in the crawl space. Yeah, that's a good point. It could be. Um, there are just a lot of unanswered questions about this case. And like we said, we're going to post all of this on social media because these are things we want to kind of follow with you guys over the break. We want to know what you can find out and we'll be doing our homework as well. And we just think if we work together, if we're keeping in conversation with each other, that maybe we can discover new information. So we'll post that on our Facebook page. And normally this is where we'd read our source materials and say goodbye, but today we have a second case and a second opportunity for you to help. But first, we're gonna take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor.
we've just covered our cold case, so now it's time to move into the hot portion of our hot and cold episode. And we'll be talking about the mysterious disappearance of 49-year-old Suzanne Morphew from Maysville, Colorado. And we just talked about how Lakeville, Indiana is small with a population of just under 800 people. Believe it or not, Maysville is even smaller with a population of about 135 people. It's about 120 miles west of Colorado Springs. So Suzanne left her Maysville home on May 10th to go on a solo bike ride for Mother's Day. Her daughters, Macy and Mallory, one of them in high school and one in college, were out of state on a camping trip. And friends and family say that her husband, Barry, was in Denver, which is about 150 miles from Maysville. He works as a landscaper and he's also a volunteer fireman for Chaffee County. There has been some inconsistency in the reports we've read about whether he was there for his job or for fire training, but regardless, we do know that he's believed to have been in Denver that weekend. And at first I thought, what a bummer. Suzanne was spending her Mother's Day alone. But then I thought about how many of my mom friends joke that their idea of a perfect day is having a few hours of alone time to enjoy peace and quiet. So actually, this may have been the perfect way for her to spend her Mother's Day. Maybe. I, when I worked as a paralegal, the attorney I worked for said that he and his wife on like Mother's Day and Father's Day <laughs> didn't do anything with the family. That was their day off. Like that is how they celebrated. Exactly. So, but it still, it seems strange to me though, because her daughters were grown. So it seems like she would want to spend time with them, but who knows? I mean, this camping trip could have been a one-time thing, but anyway, because she was home alone. Nobody knows for sure exactly what time she left for her bike ride, but she apparently let the family know that she had planned a bike ride that day. When Macy and Mallory weren't able to get in touch with her for a few hours, they became pretty concerned. The first report of Suzanne's disappearance came into the Chaffee County Sheriff's Office around 545 that day. Suzanne's bike was found near a bridge close to the Morphew home on the day of her disappearance, as well as a personal item of Suzanne's that officials have not disclosed. Fairly early into the investigation, the Morphew's nephew, Trevor Noel, served as sort of a designated spokesperson for the family, speaking to the media on the family's behalf and even setting up a GoFundMe for the family to assist with the investigation. As a side note, Tess mentioned to me earlier that I think he was kind of like a self-appointed spokesperson. (laughs) This is something that I feel like we commonly see after a tragedy where someone does a GoFundMe or something like that. They just don't know what else to do, and they feel like it's just an easy way that people who feel helpless can provide some sort of help. What seems strange to me is that the Morphews were not a family that you look at and think were hurting for money. Their home is valued at $1.5 million, so I don't really know what the purpose of collecting the money was. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I mean, the GoFundMe is up and it kind of outlines that some of it's going towards volunteers, food, water, and that sort of thing, but anyway, 
The Morphy family had just moved from Colorado to Indiana in 2018, and I'm not exactly sure what prompted this move. I mean, their oldest daughter had decided to go to college in Colorado, and Barry did own some businesses in both Indiana and Colorado, so maybe those were some contributing factors. But anyway, their Indiana home sat on the market for a while when they moved. And while friends say Suzanne did have some angst about it, they managed to pay both mortgages until the home sold. So to your point, they didn't seem like they were in desperate need financially. And it looks like their Indiana home sold for somewhere in the neighborhood of $800,000. So selling it undoubtedly alleviated a major financial burden for them. Right. So... I don't know exactly what the GoFundMe was for, but to be fair, everyone has a bottom. Barry's likely been missing a lot of work, and they have a daughter in college. I mean, maybe Trevor was just being proactive and anticipating needs that the family might eventually have. Some people have expressed that his behavior is suspicious, though, not necessarily because of the GoFundMe, but because he has recently just kind of gone silent. He went from being a spokesperson for the family to basically saying nothing at all. I mean, I get it, but keep in mind that this is an active investigation, so there is still plenty we don't know. Also, it's entirely possible that Trevor has been asked by investigators to remain silent for now so that he doesn't inadvertently divulge information that would harm the investigation. And really, it's kind of a no-win situation. Trevor has caught flack for being vocal, and Barry has caught flack for not being more vocal. We talk about this a lot, but honestly, who even knows what the appropriate reaction is to have in a situation like this? I really don't think you can win in that situation, especially early on in an investigation. I do know that Trevor was being cited as the source for confirming that Suzanne's bike was found. So that, like you said, that could have been something that investigators were like, dude, could you not, you know, release all this information that we're coming across? So, but you just, you don't want to read too much into someone's actions during their time of grief. But at the same time, this is an active investigation and Suzanne deserves for every possible suspect to be looked over with a fine tooth comb. But Barry hasn't been completely silent. He did post a video on Facebook pleading for her safe return a week after she disappeared. We'll post a link to the video on our page, but in a nutshell, what he says is that he wants her back and he'll pay any amount of money to get her back. And to your point about being a no-win situation, the video itself only makes some armchair sleuths more suspicious of him. They think his demeanor is just way too suspicious. Someone commented that the video was reminiscent of Chris Watts' early interviews. This is still an active investigation and all parties are innocent until proven guilty. But we would be curious to know what you think when you watch the video. We're going to have a discussion thread on Facebook dedicated to discussing this case as well over the break, so be sure to pop on over and share your thoughts with us. And that's not the only thing that makes Barry seem suspicious. An elderly woman said the night before Suzanne's disappearance, she heard very loud, strange noises coming from a home nearby all throughout the night. This home was under construction, and she asked the crew the next morning if they'd left their engines running overnight, and they said they had it. It just so happens that this is one of Barry's work sites. And... 
An anonymous relative has told sources that Barry has refused a polygraph, not just once, but twice. We now know that investigators later wrote the area off where the construction site was and that they dug for several days. As far as we know, nothing has come of that search. In an exclusive interview just two weeks ago, Barry told Fox 21's Lauren Sharp that he had never refused a polygraph test. You may have seen headlines about Barry filing for legal guardianship of Suzanne in June as well, and this was just a month after she went missing. There are certain things about the case that are unusual, but this is one that Tess and I have agreed doesn't really feel that suspicious to us. Barry and Suzanne own several rental properties and were working on selling some of them. This was a way that Barry could sell the properties in her absence so that he wouldn't need her signature. We'll let you guys decide for yourselves if there is anything more there worth looking into from your perspective, but as we see it, that's a sufficient explanation as to why someone would reasonably do something like that. Yeah, like Jamie said, we talked about that, and when I first found a few of the articles, they made, a, you know, a point of making it this large headline, like, you know, husband files for guardianship of missing wife, but they had already made deals to sell some property before Suzanne went missing. So to us, that didn't seem suspicious. You know, like I said, there's a GoFundMe going on and they're trying to pay volunteers, you know, pay for their food and lodging, things like that. So that just didn't seem suspicious to me. And also not only did Barry deny refusing a polygraph test, he says he was never offered one. And if you've been following the case, you know there isn't a lot of information out there. They're being pretty tight-lipped right now because this is an active investigation. A $200,000 reward is being offered in exchange for information leading to Suzanne's return, though. No questions asked. $100,000 was put up by the Morphew family, and a family friend who wants to remain anonymous matched that and put up an additional $100,000. And we know someone out there knows something that could help bring Suzanne's loved ones some peace. The CBI has created a tip line, and anyone with information regarding Suzanne's whereabouts is asked to call 719-312-7530, and we'll have this info on our Facebook as well. Yeah, again, we'll have all of this information on our Facebook page as well as all the source material. And we will have a discussion thread dedicated to discussing both Suzanne's disappearance and Larry Grove's death. Because these cases remain unsolved, this is an opportunity for you to not only discuss these cases with other true crime enthusiasts, but to actively make a difference. Even if it doesn't feel like you have anything to contribute right now, you never know when someone else might say something that jogs an idea or even a memory in your mind that might be helpful. So please join us over the break and do what you can to bring these cases to a close. It's hard to believe, but today officially marks the conclusion of season one of Serial Sisters. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank learned, you. Yes. Um, Tess, I think you'll agree with me that we have learned a ton about podcasting in our inaugural season. We went into this having no clue what we were doing. I'm sure you noticed <laughs> at times. <laughs> and, no, uh, yeah, no kidding. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, literally, but we, you know, we ourselves listen to true crime podcasts all the time and we're always looking for new things to listen to. And we're also looking for ways that we can actively be involved. Like we've talked about so many times it, during the season, like we don't want this to just be a half hour of entertainment for us or for you. Like we want to feel like that we can do something to honor the victims or if it's a case that's unsolved, maybe do something to contribute to gathering information. So um, even if it's just bringing awareness, like with Larry's case, I had never heard of this case until just recently. And it was sort of an accident that I stumbled upon it. And you hadn't heard of it either, had you? No. And so, not that I remember anyway. And it, so it's just one of those cases that's not being talked about. So sometimes even just getting people talking again. Right. Yeah. Just getting people talking about cases that are not, I mean, believe it or not, even with all the true crime shows and all the true crime podcasts and everything that's out there, there's still so many victims or so many cases and disappearances where the families have no answers. And so we could just be another outlet for that. You know, we, we feel like we've done that, but we're still learning a lot. And we think that that'll help us to bring you an even better season two. We'll be releasing a trailer for season two soon, so be sure you're staying in touch with us on Facebook at Serial Sisters and on Instagram at Serial Sisters Podcast. If you don't do social media, make sure you go to anchor.fm slash Serial Sisters Podcast and look for the link to join our mailing list so that you can stay in the know that way. For those of you who don't know, we've got a very exciting reason to be taking a break. Tess is officially on Baby Watch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and this is her first child, so she might be a little terrified. And (laughs) and appropriately, the due date's right there around Halloween, so this will be her Halloween fright this year. (laughs) That's true. That's true. True crime, I can handle, but the thought of... (laughs) keeping a human alive is a little scary and so if you've been listening and thinking Tess sounds like really out of breath or sometimes she just doesn't make sense uh, I'm having some extra struggles here <laughs> and you know if you just want to thank me or <laughs> anything like that pop on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review um, but in series in all seriousness Jamie and I have said that it helps us out and it really does. I remember listening to podcasts and, and hearing if you want to help us out, leave us a review. We now know having done this, that it does help you show up when people search for you. So if you have a second, please pop on over and just leave us a quick review. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and we've said this, it, we don't really like asking for reviews and we try not to in every episode, but we've said this a few times before, like we're not asking you to leave a false review, but if you listen and you really do enjoy our podcast, we would appreciate you leaving us a review. We've mentioned before that we've had something recently happen with intellectual property and we just want to make sure that we maintain 
our place on the charts and maintain our position in your searches. So it, it really would be a huge help. And you can consider that your baby shower gift <laughs> test as well. Because <laughs> I want to come back for season two. I'm going to need something to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and in between seasons, believe it or not, We've managed to squeeze in some time before baby where we've planned a couple of specials for you guys. And we're really excited about these because they're a little bit different than what you've been listening to all season. We've got a Halloween special. And then I don't know, should we mention our other special or leave it a surprise? Well, you kind of already did it. (laughs) But I will just say it because I'm too excited. We're doing a Christmas special as well, Ghosts of Christmas Past. And I'll just say we're going to cover some old stories, some old, old cases. Yeah, so these will be creepy in a way that's different than our true crime stories. Probably won't be homework for you to do, but it'll just be like a fun little entertaining thing in between seasons to get you guys ready for season two and to give us time to get ready for season two, more (laughs) importantly. And Jamie, I just realized... You're going to be an aunt for the first time. This is true. <laughs> so congratulations to you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, I well, know this is a special time for yes, you. Right. Again, thank you so much for listening to season one with us, guys. Uh, we, we can't wait to share more true crime with you in season two. Please continue listening at the end to hear our sources read aloud. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss any of these specials and maybe a few surprises in between now and season two. Sources used to create this episode include imgur.com, reddit.com, sjcindiana.com, newspapers.com, you can solve this cold case.com, in.gov, bicycling.com, dailymail.co. UK. Denver.cbslocal.com. CrimeOnline.com. Heavy.com. DenverPost.com. People.com. KNEWZ.com. TheSun.com. Zillow.com.